Well, let's, uh, let's spend a little time thinking tonight about the doctrine or the theological view of complementarianism. Where does that word come from? It is, comes from the word complementary, and it is in contrast to a theological view called egalitarianism. And these are two different views in the, really the, the body of Christ about the relationship between men and women and their role in the church and in the home. And the word complementarianism comes from the word complementary, that we believe that men and women are equal in value and essence in every way, but that they have different and complementary roles. And that would be contrasted with the theological position called, sometimes called egalitarianism, which is a Latin word that which would mean equality which would also hold that men and women are equal in their value and essence before the Lord, but that there is no distinction between the roles of men and women in the life of the church. And so there's a difference there. Both would affirm in the equality of, of a man and a woman before the Lord, but there would be a difference in the view of the roles. Our position here at Crosspoint is the view of complementarianism, which I'm going to cover tonight and broaden it a little bit to think a little bit how this touches not only in the life of the church, but also in the broader culture and some of really, uh, quite frankly, the, uh, and, and, I, and I don't know any other word to use other than just some of the absurdity that we are seeing in our culture today and the real confusion that we're seeing in our culture today surrounding uh, just what it means to be male and female. And so that is really part of the impulse uh, and motivation of me wanting to set aside time to do this teaching because I think what we're going to talk about tonight primarily has to do with what the Bible says about the relationship between men and women in the context of the local church. And we're not going to so much talk about some of the things we're seeing in the news with transgenderism and all that confusion, but if we don't understand this core sort of historic biblical doctrine, if we don't continue to anchor this in the life of our church, then it can lead churches and Christians into all sorts of vulnerabilities and confusion that gets them into places where we find our culture today and even many uh, Christians who would at least confess to be Christians but would be thoroughly confused about this. So I've got kind of four headings. We're going to look briefly at the complementary nature of just the created order between just all of creation and in particular men and women. Secondly, we're going to zero in on Paul's teaching on the role of men and women in the church in 1 Timothy 2. Then we're going to look at the importance of this doctrine to Christian faithfulness. And then finally, implications in the life of the church. So first, just the complementary nature of the created order. Secondly, Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2. Thirdly, the importance of this doctrine to overall Christian faithfulness and doctrine. And then fourth, implications in the life of the church. So first, a complementary nature of the created order. So if you don't have a Bible, I think it might help you, especially when we get to 1 Timothy 2. I want you to see that with your own eyes. We don't have it on the screen. But I'm just going to read a few verses out of Genesis 1 and 2. The first thing that I think is important for us to understand is that when we talk about the complementary design of men and women and how they have different roles in the life of the church, this is an echo of the very created order itself. So in Genesis 1, even before the creation of male and female, we see a kind of complementary design in creation. We see heaven 
and then earth made. We see day and night, land and sea, sun and stars, sea creatures and birds. So notice even the way Genesis 1 and 2 lays out speaking about the created order, there's a kind of complementary design that these two things go together and they complement each other that are being created on the same day. And of course, the apex, apex of that is the creation of male and female. So in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we read at the end of Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, we see Moses then writing, and this is Moses writing retroactively under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about creation. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so I, want, I think this is clear to all of us, but it's good for us to remind ourselves that there is a complementary design. Night fits with day. Land fits with sea. Space fits with the heavens, fits with the earth. And likewise, males and females fit together. And even into the actual anatomy, there is a kind of fittedness to our bodies. In fact, that's exactly what Moses says here in Genesis 2, 24, that the two shall become one flesh. And that's speaking about more than just an emotional or a spiritual union. It is, it's speaking actually about the anatomical oneness that happens in the consummation of a marriage between a male body and a female body. And I think you, obviously you all understand what I'm talking about. So this really, this is the, uh, the, the I think the best apologetic, the best argument, I think the clearest articulation of God's design. I don't want to so much talk about uh, issues of, of homosexuality uh, and transgenderism, transgenderism tonight, but I do want to say that in the New Testament, uh, there are clear prohibitions against same-sex practice, but I think all those, is, as good and as solid and as faithful as they are, I think are all actually resting on just the clear echo of creation. There is a kind of created order that is obvious and that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, because of sin, man starts to worship himself rather than the creator. And so I don't want to back away because sometimes people will get into all these semantic arguments about the words, the Greek words in the New Testament about a homosexuality, and do they mean the same type of homosexuality that is practiced today? I do think the answer to that is clearly yes, but let's not just forget the obvious design of the created order, not just for human sexuality, but for just the relationships between men and women. So that's the complementary nature of the created order. Now I want us to go to the New Testament and zoom more specifically into this this doctrine of the roles, the differences in the roles between men and women, specifically in the life of the church. And, and then I want to make a connection after we look at 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2 
about how important this is to just overall Christian faithfulness. So I'm going to unpack this text and uh, present what I think this text is saying. And uh, I also want to be mention that we'll kind of pause at the end to have questions because I want to engage with you with any questions that you may have. So this is Paul's teaching. So again, we have this echo of creation. Men and women are both made in the image of God, but they're made different, and they're made to fit together. They're made to fulfill different roles. We see that in the echo of creation. Now in the New Testament church, Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, who's pastoring a church in Ephesus, and he is giving him instruction about how the church should order itself when it's gathered together. And so let me start reading in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And this is where I really want you to be able to see these verses. So if you do have a Bible in front of you, you or if not, you can use one of the ones in the chair in front of you or even pull it up on your phone or, or whatever. But I think it's, it's helpful to see. So Paul writes this, 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, now here's, here's where it starts to get thick and controversial. Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, let's pause there. Paul is saying to Timothy, that, and the context here is the gathered worship of the church. He's saying... Let women learn quietly in that context with submissiveness. And then he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So is Paul saying that women should never speak in church? Because I heard a few of you ladies actually talking when you came in. And so what's, you know, are we, are we, do we need to enact church discipline here? No, clearly not. Paul is prohibiting a certain type of speech in gathered worship. And he's saying that women should not teach or exercise authority over men. In that context, that type of speech, a woman should not engage in. We have to read this, though, in conjunction with what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice he clearly doesn't say that a woman can't speak at all in church because in 1 Corinthians 11, he actually encourages women to pray and to prophesy in church, but just with improper adornment of the head covering, showing their submission to their husband and to the leadership of the church. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 2, now I commend you because you remember in everything. Verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prof prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So he's saying that if she, if she speaks publicly in the gathering, in that way it's dishonorable, 
the obvious implication is, is that there is a way for a woman to participate in some way in speaking in the church that is honorable. Do you follow his logic there? There is a kind of way that she can pray and prophesy that is honorable. So whatever Paul is speaking about there, that type of praying, and I don't want to delve into the deep wells of exactly what New Testament prophecy is tonight. I will say that I think New Testament prophecy is a gift that has ceased, and it does not operate normatively in the life of the church anymore. That whatever Paul is talking about there, it is a subordinate type of speech that does not rise to the level of what he's talking about back in 1 Timothy 2, where he says that there's a type of speech that a woman should remain quiet about, and it's a type of speech that is teaching and exercising authority, which I take to be the primary role of the elders, which is exactly what he launches into next in 1 Timothy 3. And remember, there's no chapter divisions in Paul's uh, first letter, so he goes straight from what he said here in 1 Timothy 2 into the role, the responsibilities of pastors and elders, which is the same thing. Pastors and elders are the same office, and their role in the life of the church is to teach and preach the Word of God and to exercise authority, not by the force of their own charisma and personality, but by their right dividing of the Word of truth. And what Paul, I think, here is clearly saying is that in verse 12, a woman should not speak in this way. Now, let me say this. Virtually nobody that is a serious Bible scholar disagrees that that is what Paul is saying here in verse 12. Verse 12 is evident. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. That's clear. That's a good and faithful English translation of what Paul wrote in Greek. The debate through the centuries is how binding... Or upon what basis does Paul say that, okay? Why does Paul say that? And here's what, what our brothers and sisters that would be in the, the more permissive egalitarian perspective would be, is that they would say that, yes, that's what Paul said. Clearly, we see that in verse 12. But the reason Paul said that is because the women in Ephesus were not educated. It was first century women. They weren't as educated, and so they weren't qualified to teach or maybe they, they, they were women that were uh, being saved out of a kind of permissive, uh, you know, pagan idolatry. And so there was a whole bunch of baggage there. And so the argument goes that Paul is basing his prohibition of women not being able to teach, not on some sort of timeless principle that applies to all of the church, but it is merely contextual because of the setting of the church in Ephesus and the particular setting of that culture and those women in that church. Do you follow? That's the logic that would say, okay, clearly Paul said that to these women, but what Paul is saying is not binding on the church through the centuries. That's the logic of most of, most of our egalitarian brothers and sisters. The problem with that, I think, is verse 13. Because Paul, I think, gives us his grounding, his logic for why women should not teach or have authority over men. Doesn't mean that women shouldn't teach in the church. Of course, Titus 2 says that women should teach uh, younger women, as we're talking, as we just gave thanks to God for earlier today. But there shouldn't be this kind of authoritative, elder-like uh, preaching and teaching in the life of the church of women 
why Paul gives us the reason in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Notice what Paul's doing there. He is not saying that women are less capable. He's not making a statement about the uh, giftedness of women in general or even of these women in Ephesus. He's not saying, you know, these, these first century women in Ephesus weren't very educated, and so they, uh, you know, they can't, not, not, not them, but maybe some in the centuries in the future. He is basing his logic in the pre-fall, pre-sin order of creation. He's saying that God has a design. And remember what that design was that we read in Genesis chapter 1. Men and women are image bearers, equal image bearers, in, made in the image of God, but they have a complementary and different design and role. And here, as it is being enunciated in the life of the church in regards to the teaching and, and leading ministry of the church, he's saying that women should not do this. Why? Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he is saying God has a good design. It does not. That, listen, this does not in any way mean that women are not as capable theologically or not, not as smart or not as good teachers. We all know that's not the case. We all know that people are people and there's giftedness in both genders. But there is a pre-fall order of creation and a design that God has. Now, in the history of the church, and in churches that would espouse and believe complementarianism, has that view been, uh, been manipulated for sinful oppression of women? Absolutely. And that's a shameful, terrible thing. Does this always work out well? Do people always live this doctrine out well on the more conservative side of the church? No. No. And we should lament over that, and, 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 and we are sorry for that. But that doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater just because some church gets this wrong, or even some wide swath of the church gets this wrong. We can't just give up biblical doctrine. And so we see here, this verse 13, to me, is just a linchpin. It seals the deal. Paul is giving us his logic. He's saying that because God has a design, not because of any inadequacy or less glorious state or any different ability, but because of God's design, men were made to lead, and the way they lead the church is through the humble, right teaching of the Word. Okay, so a few objections to this. Um, some people, uh, I just gave you the objection, and they say, well, this is not a timeless principle, uh, because it's speaking to just the women in, ex, in, in Ephesus. Um, and I think I gave the answer to that, which is verse 13. I think verse 13 takes it out of a contextual argument and makes it a timeless principle. You see that? It's the pre-fall order of creation. But some would say, and this is an argument that, again, is very similar to the argument I just gave you about the context of Ephesus. Some would say uh, that the Bible... It has what is called a redemptive. Now, I, I got to go slow here because sometimes it's even I confuse myself because I think the argument is, is poor, but here it is. It's called a redemptive movement hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just a way of interpreting the Bible, it's a lens, it's like an interpretive uh, way of looking at the Bible. 
And this particular view says that when the Bible um, is, is more permissive than its surrounding culture on a particular issue, that is giving an echo of the redemptive movement trajectory of the Bible. And so we should see that the Bible actually intends to take us beyond what it actually says. And if I'm confusing you, let me explain. Paul's words about women in the New Testament would have actually been considered quite liberal, quite permissive for first century culture. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's this really incredible thing where Paul is talking about the conjugal rights between a man and a woman, and he says to the men, he says, your body's not your own, it's your wife's, and he says to the wife, your body's not your own, it's your husband's, but for him to even mention to the husband, in fact, he mentions the husband first, he says that your body is hers would be a complete paradigm shift for first century culture because women weren't valued at all. And here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is actually arguing for the co-heir status of women, which would have been revolutionary, which would have been sort of in our parlance today would have been very permissive and even sort of like theologically liberal, Okay. And so here's the, here's the rationale of people that would argue against what I just said about this complementary design. They would say, okay, so what's going on here is the Bible in the first century is actually speaking about a more permissive way of men and women interacting with each other. And so it's wanting, and it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's sort of giving in, it's, 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 it's revealing this trajectory, and yeah, we know Paul said women shouldn't teach men, but look at all of the other things that Paul said about women that would sort of, would sort of push us towards the, um, the, the, the more permissive scale. And so the thought is, is that we should read into that a kind of permissive trajectory of the Bible, and now because we're 2,000 years later, surely the Bible wants to send us into this full realization of kind of the egalitarian sort of erasing of roles between genders. Do you you follow the argument? And I think, quite frankly, I think that is a really bad argument and a really scary argument because it just sort of, it erases the, 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 a sufficiency and the clarity of Scripture, because then Scripture can just kind of mean whatever you sort of want it to mean beyond what it intends to mean. Do you see how, do you see the gymnastics that you can do with the meaning of Scripture when we all can sort of interpret what we think it might mean in the future because it's on some sort of unseen trajectory? That is a dangerous place to be theologically. But that is, I think, an argument that some people use. So that's one objection. A second would be uh, Colossians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, a uh, famous verse, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where Paul has this beautiful verse about the implications of the gospel, and he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so the thought is, well, he's erasing the distinction um, between males and females, and so then there should be no distinction in roles. So women are free to teach and fulfill the role of pastor and elder in a church. Well, first of all, um, I don't think that that's what Paul's saying here. I think he's talking about in the sense of our redemptive standing before the Lord. 
There's no Jew or Greek slave or free male or female. He's not erasing our ethnicities, and he's certainly not erasing the biological distinctions between a man and a woman. I don't think that Galatians 3.23 is talking about roles at all. It's talking about our redemptive value before the Lord, which we know is the same from every people, tribe, tongue, and gender. And then an objection that is often brought up is um, the uh, example of Deborah, who is a judge in the Old Testament, and she was a wonderful judge in the life of Israel, and um, she actually did uh, quite glorious things, uh, was, was a very wise woman who the Lord raised up as a judge during a very dark time in the history of Israel. And I would say that I think clearly uh, that is true. Praise God for Deborah. Praise God for strong women. But I think that judges is an indictment on the people of God, not to be an example to follow. It is the darkest time in the Old Testament history and life of Israel. It is a judgment on the failure of male leadership. And because there were no men, and because the spiritual condition of Israel was so poor, this valiant woman, Deborah, rose up and did great things. But even then, she, uh, see, she, she deferred to the military leadership of the men did great things, but I do not think that is prescriptive. I think it's descriptive of a wicked time in the life of the nation of Israel. And it is, it is not an indictment, uh, but to say that a woman was leading Israel in some sense is not an indictment of the woman. It's an indictment of the failure of men in the nation of Israel. So I don't think Deborah, this one Old Testament example, is a good example. So let me zoom back out and say, okay, we see Paul's, teach, we see Paul's thought. I think Paul is saying that men and women are equal, but they have different roles, and so therefore a woman should not be a pastor or elder in a church because what pastors, elders do is they preach and teach with authority, not based on their own authority, but the authority of the Word of God. And why does Paul say that should happen? Not because women are less than in any way, but because God has an order of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Okay, two more quick things, and then we'll open it up for questions. What's the importance of this doctrine to Christian faithfulness? Now, I hope you believe this. I think you should believe this. This has been the stance of our church since the beginning. I don't think you need to believe this to be a Christian. Um, You can be a member of the church and not believe this. Uh, This is not an, what I would say, an absolute, you know, tightest shot group, absolute essential of the faith. But I will say that I think it is extremely important that you understand this, and I would encourage you to, to hold to this, because, because there is an interpretive link, and follow me closely here, the same logic, the same logic that says that women are free to be pastors and elders, and what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus in 1 Timothy 2 does not apply now. It was just a cultural thing. The same sort of interpretive logic that is applied to that passage to allow women to be pastors and elders in the church is the same interpretive logic that is applied to the sexuality issues and the homosexuality debate. It's the same sort of interpretive lens that, oh, well, what was going on in the first century is different. That type of sexual sin is different 
than the sexual sin that's going on now. And the type of relationship between two genders now, same genders, is different from what Paul is talking about in Romans. And so the, the prohibitions against same-sex attraction in the first century are not binding on us today because it's a different kind. It's a kind, again, this redemptive permissiveness. So my point, I, hear, I want to be careful to say this. There are good Bible-believing churches that do not believe what we believe about complementarianism, that women should not be pastors and elders. There are good, faithful churches that believe the gospel that might have a woman as a pastor or an elder that do not affirm homosexuality. I want to say that. I want to say that. But I just want to say that the same sort of theological grid is being applied to both. And over the course of time, it will be very difficult for churches that affirm that women can be pastors theologically. It will be very difficult for them to hold the line on the avalanche of pressure of the homosexual and transgender agenda that is coming their way because they don't really have any theology that's holding them in place. Does that make sense? It's the same wrong interpretive lens. In fact, uh, I do not know of any church denomination or group that would consider themselves to be complementary in their theological position between men and women that would believe that what Paul is saying here is that it's, a, it's, it's an order of creation that women should not be elders and pastors. I do not believe of any, I do not know of any Christian group or denomination that holds that stance that also affirms homosexuality as a legitimate Christian lifestyle. But there are many churches that would hold to female pastors that would also be gay affirming. And I'm not saying it's necessary, I'm not, I'm not saying it's all of them are going to be like, I, but I am saying that there is a theological connection. And you're, you see that, I think you're seeing that in the United Methodist Church to some degree today. You, see that, you saw that in the Presbyterian USA that um, went through a... I mean, the Presbyterian Church was one of the faithful denominations in our country. I mean, you're talking about J. Gresham Macon, B.B. Warfield, all these stalwarts of the faith during the turn of the century in the early 1900s. These are giants of the faith. And the Presbyterian Church started to slip liberal, gave in on these things. And then in the 19, early 1970s, you saw the Presbyterian Church break off from the Presbyterian USA Church into a schism, and now we have the Presbyterian PCA, which is a faithful denomination. And so you, you see these things, and, and a, a lot of it starts with this differing view of the role of men and women in the church, and you give way on that. You lose that clarity there, and you, you start now interpreting the Bible in a different way, and basically it, it kind of it it makes you vulnerable to a, a very a cultural hermeneutic. And now the thing that drives the church is what the culture finds permissible, not what the Bible clearly says. And that is a terrible place for a church to be. And I, we're not there, but I think we, we just need to remind ourselves of this so that we don't ever get there. Okay, final thing, and then we'll open up for questions. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a little long-winded here. 
Implications in the life of the church. Well, one clear, obvious implication, and I think you're aware of this, is that we believe that the office of elder pastor, which I think is a synonymous term in the New Testament, elder pastor overseer, we think that that term, that office in the church, is clearly reserved for men. Again, I stress, not because women are not capable and gifted and co-heirs in grace with men or any less image bearers of God, but because they have a different role and design in the church. Secondly, what are the implications in the life of the church? Well, what can women do? Well, I think women can do just about everything in the life of the church except those duties and responsibilities that involve eldering, pastoring, and preaching or teaching. So it's not just the office of pastor and elder, but it's also the function of preaching and teaching. And so we wouldn't have a woman preaching and teaching men in a gathered setting. But I do think that women can speak in the gathered congregation. I think women can read scripture. I think they can pray in appropriate ways that that Paul would speak to in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, they can obviously teach children. They can obviously care for the, uh, the they can uh, disciple other women, one generation commending God's works to another. So the church should be full, and this church, praise God, is full of wonderful, dear, Bible-saturated, wonderfully wise teaching women who are pouring out God's word all throughout this congregation in appropriate ways. And for that, we say, praise God, give us more of it, amen and amen. But what it means to be a woman, biblically, is not to be compared to what it means to be a man in function and role. And so I don't ever want women in our congregation to think that this is somehow kind of a limiting thing, as if you can do everything but this because this is the really important stuff. That's not the case. Our culture has lied to women and told them that in order for you to have value, you must be able to do everything that a man does, and that's a lie from Satan. You're a woman, not a man, and vice versa. And that's why we see the confusion today, where if a guy can't compete against other guys, he, uh, the, the terrible confusion that goes on in somebody's mind that they would actually even mutilate their own flesh that God created. It's, it's absolute absurdity. And so women can do uh, ju- anything in the life of the church um, except for function, the function and role of elders, which is teaching and exercising authority. Okay, let me pause there. Questions, comments, thoughts, and let's, if you have a, I think we only have one functioning mic, and so it's over there, and maybe the first person, Danny, I want you to go to the mic because we're taping this. If you could maybe move the mic to the center, just kind of be bold and bring it to the center and just go so we can all, so people over there that if they have a question. Danny D. Can you hear me? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is a request for a quick and dirty response to a <laughs> common um, argument that I've heard people make yeah. when bringing this up. They go, they'll look at that verse in, or the section in uh, 1 Timothy, and then they'll go back to that um, 1 Corinthians reference that you made, and they'll say, mm-hmm. well, Paul also says women shouldn't wear pearls, they shouldn't braid their yep. hair, they shouldn't dress fancy, and then in 1 Corinthians, you know, they should shave their heads, or they should have their, if they don't have their heads covered when praying, and yep. so, and they try to use that, and I think falsely, 
and I'm, what I'm asking is basically probably a couple sermons worth of response, but, mm -hmm. you know, practically in an apologetic, you know, quick and dirty response to that false. Yeah, so what I would say, uh, so as I, let me repeat the question back to you. So if we're holding that this is a timeless principle, um, why don't we believe that women should wear head coverings today? And I would say that I think the principle of head coverings still applies today but that I think the uh, context of how it worked out in the first century um, was cultural. And you may say, well, if that's cultural, then why isn't, um, why isn't 1 Timothy 2 cultural? And I think because of verse 13, and what's not cultural is the order of creation. So I think Paul in 1 Timothy 2 trumps any sort of cultural expression of submission or anything when he says Adam was formed first in Eve. But there's going to be different ways that a woman's uh, submissiveness, submissiveness uh, in the life of a church is going to work itself out in the culture. In first century Corinth, it worked itself out in a head covering. I don't think that's binding on a woman today necessarily, but I do think the posture of humility is. If you want to go deeper into that, there's a really good article that I can send you if anybody's interested in that by Tom Schreiner, who is a wonderful New Testament scholar, and he wrote about 20 pages on um, why head coverings, why churches like us, it would be conservative in our stance on the role of women, uh, don't necessarily require head coverings, which I think is a good, wise thing. Good question. Does that kind of answer you, Danny? Yeah. I don't know how quick and dirty it was, but it was, it was, yes. I don't think that mic works. Yeah, there you go. So, in talking about complementarianism, mm -hmm. a hard word to say, mm -hmm. um, what would your response be to someone who says, well, if they can't be elders and um, pastors, can they be deacons? Yeah, that's a good question. So, that's a great question. I, I meant to mention that. I think um, I want to give a qualified yes to that. Um, and this is a, 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 but I think only certain, in certain types of deacons. So, First uh, Timothy 3, let's keep, we were just in First Timothy 2. Because um, there's a lot that we need to say. If you come from, okay, let me just let me just read First Corinthians or First Timothy three, verse eight. It says, "Deacons likewise." So he's in First Timothy three, verses one through seven. He's given the qualifications for elders. Okay, and one of the primary things that elders do is they need to be able to teach. That's going to distinguish the office of elder from the office of deacon, okay? The difference between elders and deacons is elders lead the church through teaching, and deacons serve, they serve the church through taking care of things administratively to free the elders up to oversee and teach the church. So he's given the qualifications for elders in 1 through 7, and in verses 8 and following, now he transitions to give an overview of the qualifications of deacons. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Okay, now verse 11, here's, where the, here's the meat. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, you may see a little footnote in your ESV translation under their wives likewise. Uh, this is a bit of a, a, a long-winded argument, but that word gynakos, I can't remember if I'm pronouncing it correctly in Greek, that is translated their wives there is a word for women 
in Greek, which can be translated as wives or just women, okay? And the ESV translators have decided to take a non-controversial, I think, and more conservative stance and are calling these women that Paul is mentioning in this Greek verb in verse 11 as the wives of the deacons, okay? And so um, you might be inclined to think, well, he's talking about obviously male deacons. I think it's very possible that that word that Paul uses in verse 11 just means women likewise. And what's the, there's a couple keys here sort of textually that might make us think that Paul is speaking about female deacons here. One is he transitions with the conjunction likewise. So he's talking about a different group of people in verse 11. Likewise, the women who are in a certain, another class of people. And secondly, and this I think is instructive, he doesn't speak at all in verses 1 through 7 about elders' wives. And you would think that if he's going to give instruction about deacons' wives that he would also want to give instruction about elders' wives because you would think sort of theologically that the office of elder would be more, in a sense, important in the life and order of the church because it's a, it's a more high-stakes office, but he doesn't speak about elders' wives. So that has led some, even within conservative circles like ours, to conclude that maybe what Paul is saying here in verse 11 is that he's not speaking about just the wives of the deacons, but women who are deacons. And then I would also just add that in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe is called a servant or deacon of the church. And so I would say that my position would be, we don't currently have any women deacons here, I would say I want to give a qualified, nuanced yes to your, to your question, is that I do think that uh, the Bible allows for women to be deaconesses, to serve as a servant in the life of the church, but only in appropriate ways, not ways that they would be in authority over men. And let me be careful to say that if you come from like a typical Southern Baptist church, that has a pastoral staff and a deacon board, well, that church, in that sort of polity, women should not be deacons because they are misunderstanding what deacons are, and they should stop calling those deacons deacons, and they should call them elders. And a lot of churches are very confused on that. So we got to do a lot of work to even think about what a deacon is. It's not a group of businessmen who get together as kind of the legislative, they're like the Congress to the presidential staff of the pastoral office. That's not it. That's not this bicameral authority. That's not the way. Deacons are servants of the church. And praise God, I think the church should be filled with women servants. And I'm fine with calling them deaconesses, but they wouldn't serve in a way where they're in a position of authority over a man. Does that make sense, kind of? But, um, but certainly, that, that's, that's a kind of... Uh, you know, I think we, we can go either way on that. Yeah. Melissa. So we would never have a woman deacon over like ushers or, you know, security. We might have a woman deacon who's caring for widows or, you know, child care, things like that in appropriate ways. Yes. You can bend that microphone down a little bit if you need. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask about a lot of times you hear people say, well, what about like, missions and faraway places where yeah. women have to minister to the men and teach them and mm. so on. And the, the recent 
example you hear of that is, at least from what I've heard, yeah. the church in Iraq is growing like crazy, and it's mm -hmm. all led by women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a wonderful question, and I, I would kind of put that in the Deborah category, and I certainly, I, I, we bump up against that a lot, like when we go to Uganda, and um, uh, you know, I do this pastoral training every year with a, b a bunch of pastors in Uganda, and there sometimes will be women pastors there. And I'm not about to come into that context and just say, oh, well, this is out of order. I mean, there's a, there's a reason, there's a cultural, there's societal reasons why things are going on there. And this one lady got up, and she was a female pastor, and her husband was a pastor, and he was killed by Idi Amin, back in the, you know, the dictator in Uganda back in the 1970s, early 80s. And she continued to pastor his work out in the, kind of out in the suburbs, or, uh, really out in the remote areas of where she was from and was doing, you know, was, was, was doing the best that she could. Uh, I don't think it's right. I, think, I don't think it's biblical, but it doesn't mean that God can't can do things there. And I think we have to be very careful about just imposing, you know, our doctrine on places like that just sort of abruptly um, when uh, those places are not ser have not been served well by good teaching. That's where I think Western missionaries from churches like us just must exercise lots of patience and endurance as we gently lead a church towards a better understanding of theology and church life, and that takes time, and it takes patience. And so I think the worst thing we can go in and do is just sort of invalidate things because they don't fit sort of our sort of American Calvinistic, complementarian, uh, you know, what are you talking about? You, you don't listen to Paul Washer? Who are you? I mean, you know, yeah. I mean come on. You know, I mean, I mean the, world is, the world is a messed up place, and some people and some frontier churches are just doing the best they can, and so I would praise God for that, even as you work towards moving that church towards a healthier thing, and that is not, a, that's a very easy thing to say at Crosspoint Church on a Sunday night, and a much harder thing to do on a missions frontier, and I'm, I'm well aware of that, so great question. Does that kind of answer? Yeah. Does that sort of answer it? Yeah. Ben. Probably going to get myself in a lot of trouble with this question, but yeah. you kind of left me hanging. Oh, okay. Um, so the answer to that question that Paul is posing there is kind of two-part. And we touched on the first part of verse 13, but we didn't jump on the hand grenade of verse 14 um, about Eve was deceived first. Um, and then also just that idea of in 2 Timothy where Paul addresses the false teachers that come in, and they specifically target weak women and how, um, I, I guess I wrestle a lot with just our culture has been so overwhelmed by a push for feminism for the last 50 mm -hmm. years or so that, mm -hmm. I, that I think it some ways has affected even how we view these verses in light of Paul's teaching yeah. um, and the clear roles of men and women as sources of authority, um, whether it's just in the home or in the family mm -hmm. or also uh, in the church, and I was just wondering if you could speak to that for a second. Yeah, so verse 14 um, says, or verse 15, verse 14, for Adam was formed first in Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, and then if that's not enough, let's just go ahead into verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So yeah, we could do a sermon series on that. Um, I do think it is speaking to uh, what is the different gift sets of women, and I think both men and women have vulnerabilities in the way God has made them. And I think Eve expresses that vulnerability in the garden, but that's not to say, so I think there is a particular feminine vulnerability 
that men are not going to have, and there is a particular male vulnerability that women are not going to have, and that owes to the difference between men and women. It doesn't mean that one is less than or more than or women are less intelligent than. It just might mean that I think in some ways women might be more vulnerable in that situation, whereas men are more vulnerable to passivity because what's the whole reason that this was even allowed was the, you could argue, the prior vulnerability of Adam and his passivity towards his leadership of Eve. So I do want to say, and I think you need to say this with a lot of nuance, that although men and women are equal in their value in essence and their co-heir status before the Lord, uh, they are not only anatomically designed differently, they are emotionally designed differently. And in a general sense, this means that men and women, I think, are spiritually vulnerable in different ways. But I don't think that is a sort of a knock on women in any way. That's just an acknowledgement of the differences. And it's not to say that men are also not vulnerable in many ways as well. Does that, does that kind of answer your question, Ben? Yeah. And then, verse 15, I don't think it means that you uh, are salvifically saved, like your sins are atoned for through childbearing. I think that has to do with a kind of sanctification that happens with women as they are, I think you could make an argument, as they are really content with being women. It doesn't mean that you have to have a child to be a true woman or to be saved. But there's a kind of design a kind of fruition of the sanctification of the female role that will happen um, through what it means to be a woman, which is most prominently, I think, expressed through the giving of life and childbearing. It's a good question, Ben. Any, any other questions? Yes. I can't see. Oh, yeah. Oh, Sharon, hey, I can't see that. (laughs) Not only is my shoulder going, my eyes are going too. Since there are a lot of women that lead women's ministries, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and some will preach before, Mm. you know, men and women, Mm -hmm. we're not supposed to necessarily believe that they're false teachers because they do that. Is that, Mm. or should we stay away from women that err in that way and they may because they err in that way they may err that's a great question you know it kind of leads you into other error Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's a a wonderful question um i i i I think the word false teacher is a little strong but i do think i would i would encourage women to avoid women teachers who make it a regular practice or a practice at all of teaching in front of a gathered audience because I think that they are in um, uh, uh, direct disobedience to this clear scripture. It doesn't mean that what they might be saying in that moment is false, but I do think it, it would cause me to be uh, uh, just concerned about their hermeneutic. And I will say this, that some famous, some famous, I'm going to just give you an, a, a name, Beth Moore, okay? I know that's probably what everybody's thinking about. Um, my concern with Beth Moore, here's a perfect example, okay? I know that there are many women in this church who have benefited from things that Beth Moore has said and taught, and I'm not denying that at all. And to that I say, praise God. But Beth Moore is a clear example of somebody who I think um, 
gives evidence to how when you, I think she misunderstands this, and my concerns with Beth Moore's teaching is that it, it's, it's, it's based on a lot of subjectivity and um, emotion and sort of personal interpretation that I think just gets really kind of loosey-goosey. And I think sometimes that can be an evidence of the consequence of people that sort of put themselves outside of what I think is the faithful biblical teaching on this. And so I would say somebody like that, if you've, if you've benefited from them, praise God. Uh, don't, don't, you know, of course, I mean, uh, that's wonderful. But I just think that there's better, more faithful people that w- women should listen to. And I, and I have a long list of those people, and I'm sure many women in this church have a long list of those people. So I would encourage people to stay away from teachers that do that. I would stop short of necessarily calling them false teachers. They may be in some cases, or they may be on that trajectory. I would want to say it's unhealthy teaching is the word I'd want to use. Does that help, Sharon? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think I think Beth Moore practices eisegesis. I think she I think she finds meaning in the text that is not there often. I'm sure she says she has said lots of good things, lots of good things. I don't doubt that at all. But I think um, she's informed by a kind of mystical hermeneutic that sometimes causes all sorts of problems. And I could I could spend a lot of time talking about that. But that uh, you know. But I, I and if you're interested in that, I could I could talk to you more kind of one on one about that. Um, yeah, good question. Anybody else have any other questions? Elizabeth. Super nervous again. Oh, um, come just on. Just to ask you a question. You're thank so you good for, at talking. <laughs> thank you for talking about this. Yes. I can't imagine standing in front of all of us and being like, ask me questions. Yeah. Um, so thank you. I wrote this down. Um, there. So I'm 37. I went back to school in my 30s. Mm-hmm. I was in graduate school, and I'm with a lot of people in their 20s, a lot of young women. Mm-hmm. So you go through graduate school, and there are certain be autonomous, be independent, push, mm-hmm. be a leader, be all of these things. Yeah. There was a time in my Christian walk where I didn't question anything that the Bible said. And the older I've gotten, the more I realized that Paul told us to consider things, to reason things out. And there was a time when I started to push against I was like, well, why? Well, that young lady might be way more qualified or whatever. I didn't realize at the time what I was doing was making myself above what the Bible was saying. I was Mm -hmm. just reasoning stuff out. Mm -hmm. And something that really helped me, and this is in case you talk to anybody that Mm -hmm. is saying this to you, something that helped me was a Tim Keller sermon. I don't remember what he was talking about, but one of the verses he said was, He quoted something from Isaiah, and God was talking to women who didn't have kids. And he Mm -hmm. said, I can make you sing without children. And I was like, that's very bold. Like, I can do it. I can make you happy and satisfy you and give you everything you want, even though you don't have what you think that you need. Mm -hmm. And I think, and you will correct me if I am wrong on this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I think it's an opportunity because it's different. And it's different to what young ladies are being, my 20-year-old coworkers, for example, Mm -hmm. are being taught to be submissive and to have this role and to respect that. Mm -hmm. 
and it gives an opportunity for them to see, oh, wow, I don't agree with that. Then I can, so watch it. Do any of these women look unhappy? It get, it's an opportunity to see God's glory, I would mm-hmm. think, because it's different. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to see... To see. see God do something special and mm-hmm. see that women are valued and respected and loved and cared for and their gifts are nourished and helped to grow. Mm-hmm. It's not an oppressive or mm-hmm. bad situation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I was talking to my 20-year-old coworkers. Mm-hmm. One of them is an outspoken non-believer, mm-hmm. and her aunt is married to a woman, and they are trying to get pregnant and have a baby. She's very outspoken about um, a lot of things, but homosexuality, love is love, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with them for a while, and I've prayed and asked God to, and my small group has prayed and asked God to give me an opportunity to share the gospel, and it happened the other night. And she said, so are you saying that my aunt is going to hell, is what she asked me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, or... And I said, I don't, I don't remember what I said. I went, I went to the gospel, but I said, Sierra, God's a, in one sense, very respectfully, God's a person. And if he created all of us and he created a system to things, then there are going to be things that he asks of us that we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. But this is what I know from my life. Like, this is where God has shown up in my life, and I know he's shown up in my life. This is where he's shown up in the Bible. So even when I don't understand it, I know that it's okay to trust him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was sharing that with everyone in case you talk to 20-year-olds yeah. and to get some feedback because yep. I'm trying to be a yep. good witness to them. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point that you bring up, Elizabeth, because, and this is a little bit of what I spoke about last week with this don't be conformed to this world. The, the, the new the, the authority has moved from outside the created order. Now during this industrial revolution, now this autonomy of self, now authority rests in our culture, rests inside of us. And so all uh, t- people that are 30 and below, maybe old, have grown up in a world of the autonomy of self, expressive individualism. Who are you to tell me that I can't, define my own truth. And they co-opt, I talked about this a little bit, it's a false gospel. They co-opt words like love and redirect language, and now the word love becomes the Trojan horse that invades the church. I mean, who am, how many of us are against everybody that doesn't want to be loving? Raise your hands. You know, I mean, that's just, isn't that a co that's a satanic co-opting of language. And we live in a world of expressive individualism where, and here's the deal, we can't just say, yeah, and all those liberals out there, those people, no, no. The, this expressive individualism lives in us too. And we have got to root it out of our own hearts because we want stuff the way we want it and we've got to be aware of it. We've got to fight sin. We've got to fight this false God of self that lives in us and all of us, whether it is uh, liberal feminism in the 60s that would hate this teaching, whether it's homosexual urges, whatever, whether it is heterosexual deviant urges, whatever it is, all of us were born sinners. 
and have to take God's side. All of us have to say no to ourself. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And all of us have to say no to the false God of self. And we lose, I think, a lose witness to the, to the, to the culture when we, when we think that they're the only ones that have to deal with this expressive individualism and this false God of self. We have to die to it too. And, um, and there's so much more we could say about that. Well, time has is, is, is gotten away from us. I hope this has been helpful. Um, and if you have any questions about anything I said or you want more follow-up, friends, this is a... I want you to know the gracious disposition that certainly I have and all of the elders have about any theological issue or topic. If you want to talk about this, you can question anything I've said. I won't be offended. I won't be defensive. Um, I, I, I want to talk to you about these things, and I, want to, and I want to make sure that you understand, and I want to be clearly understood. And if anything that I've said uh, that wasn't clear or helpful, um, I, I want to, to help you grow in understanding um, and so that we can all grow together in grace. So let me pray and ask the Lord to go with us. And I'll stick around and ask, ask any, answer any questions that you may have. Lord, thank you for uh, this teaching. Lord, thank you for the glory of the created order. Thank you for men and women. Thank you for the way this, I think, works out well in our church. Lord, give us men that are humble and lead and they're Christ-like and they lay down their lives. Give us women that are noble and gracious and feminine and strong and pour out their lives to the life of the church. Lord, uh, no church strikes this balance perfectly. Uh, if there's any sort of chauvinism in our church, I pray that it would uh, shrivel up and die. If there's any sort of expressive individual feminism in our church, I pray that it would also mature and grow into grace and die and grow into a better understanding. Lord, help us to continue to strike the right note within the context of our church and to sound the right note apologetically but also courageously to a culture around us that is so confused. Lord, help us to continue to get this right, to be courageous, to be compassionate, but be unflinching in the truth of creation and what it means to be a man and a woman. So help us with these things, Lord. Go with us now as we go into our week, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.